Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Monday, December 9th, 2019. On today's episode, we're going to have a spoiler discussion of the eighth episode of HBO's Watchmen, entitled A God Walks Into A Bar. My name is Ben Pearson. I'm the senior writer at SlashFilm.com, and I'm joined on today's episode by Slash Film writers Y Train Bowie. Hey, everyone. And Chris Evangelista. Hi. HT, you're back. Uh, I'm so glad to have you back. So I want to ask you, what have you thought about Watchmen over the past, what, three weeks when you've been gone? Oh, man, this show rules. So um, I actually wasn't able to catch up with Watchmen while I was in Vietnam because uh, my HBO Go, the VPN, like, doesn't work in Vietnam, uh, which was ironic because a lot of the last couple episodes have taken place in Vietnam where Vietnam has played a prominent um, role in it. And I was really... um, sort of pleasantly surprised to find that because I remember talking in a previous episode where I was uncertain how this series would sort of deal with the um, the troublesome elements of the Vietnam War that the uh, original comic book never really grappled with. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I really appreciate that that is playing such a significant role. And um, so, yeah, I'm I'm back and I'm excited to watch. I binged the past couple episodes, like right before this, uh, we started recording. So it's kind of fresh in my mind. And I also had a lot of thoughts while I was watching them. And now I don't remember what they were, but I just want to say that the show rules and it's awesome. And uh, this past, um, most recent episode is just so, so good. Yes, awesome. Uh, I'm glad that we're all on the same page there. Um, I want to kick this off by reading a couple emails. Um, this one is from Louie from Cal- California. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but basically uh, this person is just theorizing what if the Millennium Clock is a way to kill Dr. Manhattan by having, uh, let's see, yeah, basically that that's the, the gist of the email. I, I wonder if, based on what we saw in this episode, which was not much to do with the, the Millennium Clock and the Millennium Tower, if that's sort of where you guys are leaning in, towards a, in terms of like um, speculation for what might happen in the finale before we jump into what actually happens in this episode. Do you guys feel like the Millennium Clock may be um, 
used as some sort of device to destroy Dr. Manhattan or perhaps multiple Dr. Manhattans if that if that ends up being the case? Um, yeah, that sounds like a good theory. I wasn't really sure what the Millennium Clock would have, what role it would have in sort of this overall plot, but it seems like it comes down to um, the Seventh Cavalry trying to harness Dr. Manhattan's powers, and obviously Lady True and um, Will Reeves are trying to stop that. And uh, yeah, destroying Dr. Manhattan seems to be like the the answer to um, whatever uh, to that. Uh, goal. So uh, yeah, that that sounds right to me. Or I wonder if it's something a bit more, less um, violent, something that has to do with, uh, I don't really know what the solution would be, but something that like saves everyone in the end, but because I'm optimistic, but <laughs> who knows? Because I am now invested in the Dr. Manhattan Angela love story. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Chris, what about you? Do you think that's a, a plausible theory? I mean, sure, anything's possible with this show. The sky's the limit. <laughs> um, I guess speaking of the sky being the limit, uh, somebody, let's see, uh, Shane from Alberta, Canada, emailed us in and um, sort of addressed something that we brought up a couple episodes ago, I think, about the idea of uh, time maybe lasting, uh, be, being measured differently on Europa, uh, Jupiter's moon. Um, this person says, uh, on the official HBO Watchmen podcast, Damon Lundeloff mentioned something about how time is clearly on a different trajectory with the Vite storyline, which led me to look up the rotation of Europa's axis now that we know where he's located. One day on Europa lasts as long as one year, presumably on Earth there. Um, my guess is that Vite has only been on Europa for seven Earth days. Seven candles were on the last cake in the post the, the post credit scene, uh, meaning that he was rescued or left after only a week there, he probably then set in motion something with Lady True to save the 8 million or billion humans under the guise that he sold the, his company to her, uh, again, to maybe save humanity from itself. What do you guys think? So um, d does that track to you guys, like the idea that maybe uh, Vite has only been gone for a week? Like, I guess, I guess we saw the 2009 version of him in this episode, and he didn't look that different. I mean, his his style certainly changed, um, but I don't know. Do you think there was some sort of de-aging going on that was just pretty subtly done there? Um, do you guys think he's only been gone for a week, or do you think seven candles represent seven Earth years? How, how, what do you guys think? That makes sense to me. Um, yeah, and, like, the, the seven candles definitely, like... Um, supports that theory as well. I, I do think that's right. And um, also I want to note that seven days is the time that God created earth. So mm -hmm. I think that's significant as well. And um, yeah, that, I, I, yeah, I think that's correct. I mean, to me, it seems like we know that a lot of time passed on Europa because he, uh, Vite went through all the effort of you know, like we saw little flashes of it, but it seemed like a lot of time had passed from him writing his play to actually putting on the play to, um, you know, all of this time passing and him realizing that he's unfulfilled on this planet and trying to escape. So I don't know if it was like seven actual days for him because then he would receive one cake per day and that would be pretty ridiculous. I don't think the show's trying to posit that in terms of a timeline. But yeah, I'm, I'm curious to see how the Vite storyline sort of collides with what's going on with Angela and, and everybody else back on Earth. So uh, we'll get into that in a little bit. But yeah, let's let's go ahead and dive into the rest of this episode or, or start with this episode, um, which is basically just uh, a lot of it is Angela and Dr. Manhattan at a bar in Vietnam. Um, it's at Mr. Eddie's bar, which is something that I did not pick up on myself, but I, I 
heard on, uh, I think it was the series regular podcast from The Hollywood Reporter. They pointed this out right when uh, Dr. Manhattan walks through the title into the bar. It says Mr. Eddie's Bar. And I think looking at the production design of that and, and sort of um, comparing it to the bar in the comics in Vietnam where uh, Edward Blake, the comedian, shoots this pregnant Vietnamese woman. We, we talked about this on a previous episode of the podcast. I think it's supposed to be the same bar. So uh, Mr. Eddie's is m- maybe a reference to Edward Blake there. I'm not really sure. I'm wondering if this confirms our sort of uh, theorizing of that this this may... Uh, involve Lady True's parentage in some way, like maybe she was the the child of the pregnant woman who was shot, and and maybe Doctor Manhattan did something to um to help deliver the baby, and and potentially Adrian Veidt ended up raising her because we were talking in a previous episode about how you know theorizing that maybe he could be sort of her adopted father. Um, Chris, does this ring true to any of you? Did the name of that bar did that um did that hit your radar at all? No, because I haven't read the comic in a very long time, so I didn't pick up on that. Sorry, nerds. <laughs> well, now that I've laid it all out, does that sound uh, plausible? Does that answer any potential questions for you? I can't remember what it was, but I read something. I think it's like on the PDPedia site that completely blows that theory apart. Like there's something, and I can't remember what it was. I should have like wrote it down, like, you know, a professional, but mm-hmm. I have so much junk kicking around my stupid head that stuff gets pushed out. So I can't remember what it was, but there's something on PDPedia that, that puts that theory to rest. So I, I can't, I don't think that's true. Okay. All right. So I just wanted to address that up at the, the top of this episode. Um, H-T- I do wonder, oh, like, oh, I do wonder who would name a bar after Edward Blake after he uh, had supposedly been only violent and terrible to the Vietnamese people while he was there. So, I don't. I wonder who would actually name the bar, Mr. Eddie's Bar, if it is named after Edward Blake, because yeah. uh, that would be quite ironic, I think. It would, and I think it's maybe worth pointing out that um, Eddie's is spelled E D D Y apostrophe S on this bar, and I think. Eddie Blake was with an IE in the Watchmen comic, so uh, maybe it's just some sort of like bizarre Easter egg on Damon Lindelof's part. But I feel like everything in this show has been so purposeful and and um, you know chosen uh, with such care that I, I don't know if that's a mistake or just some sort of um, illusion or <laughs> I'm not really sure. But uh, worth Mr. Eddie up. is what the pregnant Vietnamese woman called him too, and I think that spelling it's probably like it can be is. I think that could be loose, but uh, yeah, I wonder if it's just an Easter egg, like you were saying. Yeah. Um, HG, I, I know that you mentioned that you were a fan of, uh, you're now invested in the Angela and uh, John Osterman love story here. Um, this episode, to me, it reminded me a lot of The Constant, the lost episode where the uh, episode sort of like leaps back and forth through time. And that's basically like the same construct that they used here. I assume uh, you liked this episode a lot. Uh, yes, I did. Um, you might, you guys, I don't know if you guys know this, but The Constant is one of my favorite TV episodes of all time. I watch it every Christmas because it is a Christmas episode, and uh, it just um, is such a well-crafted uh, love story through time, and um, a god walks into a bar, does the exact same thing, but in a more, and almost in like a wider scale and with the, you know, all the Watchmen mythology behind it too. And yeah, I really enjoyed the structure of this episode. I really liked the one through line of this episode being, um, the sort of conversation between Dr. Manhattan 
and Angela in the bar and uh, kind of him, ex- we get to experience the closest thing uh, to how he perceives time and experiences everything. So um, I really liked that. And I thought that was really effective. Yeah. What did you think about it, Chris? Yeah, I, I in my review, I pointed out that I got serious, constant vibes from this. And it makes sense since, you know, they're both co-written by Damon Lindelof. So he he loves that time thing. He's a big fan of, of time jumping. And um, this does make like a perfect sort of companion piece to the constant because, you know, it's it's both a love story and it's about time jumping around, which is pretty much what the constant was as well. So I do, I do want to add that. I don't think this episode nails the love story quite as well as I think the constant does. Like I'll put it this way. The constant, every time I rewatch it makes me weep and I did not cry while watching this episode. So I think that the constant is a little bit better at, at selling the love story. But beyond that, this is a great episode. Yeah, I don't think it's on the level of the constant yet, but um, it is it is great. I was trying to remember, it's been so long since I've rewatched Lost, but I wonder how much of the Penny-Desmond relationship was previously laid out or hinted at compared to how much of the Cal, or uh, I'm sorry, John-Angela uh, relationship that that's you know existed so far in the show because i feel like we haven't really seen very much of those two as a couple so far in the show and i i thought it did a very good job of making me invest and care about their relationship you know in essentially just an hour because we haven't seen too much of them together the, the show has so many other things on its mind that it has not taken the time to really establish their love affair or romance or, or home life really um aside from just a couple scenes so I would be interested to see like what the percentages are, you know, the breakdown of like screen time devoted to those relationships, you know, comparing this episode with the constant. But um, yeah, so uh, I I guess, you know, it it makes things it makes the love story all the more powerful to me that uh, Angela points out right at the beginning that she hates Dr. Manhattan. And then by the end of it, she's like (laughs) agreeing to go on a second date with this guy, basically. Um, So, uh, yeah, I don't know. I just, just wanted to point that out like over the course of this episode, he sort of wins her over, even though she is like essentially there celebrating or, or not celebrating, but uh, commemorating the death of her parents, which were, was indirectly caused by Dr. Manhattan himself. So um, it's maybe like the most unlikely thing that you could imagine would like <laughs> she's there drowning her sorrows. And then she ends up, you know, uh, agreeing to see this guy again, who was the, the, the person who uh, essentially caused the death of her own parents. So um, pretty intense stuff. Uh, I wanted to ask you guys, do you think that John Osterman killed Cal, the first Cal? Um, because uh, we see uh, Angela take him to a morgue in order to, uh, I guess, find a, a human body to um, take over essentially. And Cal died under the first Cal, the original Cal that we never really see in this series died under mysterious circumstances. There's some mention in this episode of, of um, uh, something about maybe dying of a heart attack, but like he couldn't, um, they couldn't afford an autopsy. So that's left uh, mysterious there. Do you guys think that there's a chance that, uh, that John Osterman, that Dr. Manhattan as this being who can see sort of all points on a timeline at the same time and experiences all of this stuff, maybe knew that he would need to, uh, potentially kill this person in order to become them because that's the one that Angela would choose. I think, that's, I think yeah. it's a little too dark, but you never know. I mean, 
I mean, the, you know, I, I feel like the do- the Dr. Manhattan in the comic would do something like that. But I feel like the Dr. Manhattan in at least this episode is a little more likable than the, the comic version where the comic one is sort of like this indifferent sort of figure. Whereas I don't get that indifference from this version of Dr. Manhattan, but I, I don't know. That was the impression I got, actually. I was like, oh, he definitely killed him. So. Oh, all right. Well, then. <laughs> I, I mean, I, don't, I think there was just some mention in this episode, too, of, of Dr. Manhattan, like, being the one who, like, manipulates situations to make ideas seem like they came from other people when, in fact, they were his ideas to begin with. So I was just wondering if it was, like, a more subtle uh, way of the show sort of laying that out there as a, as a potential dot for us to connect. But, um, yeah, either way, uh, I, I liked how this all played out, so... Um, let's, let's jump to the Adrian Veidt, uh, storyline for a second. Um, HD, what, what have you been thinking about the Adrian Veidt stuff as, as you've been catching up with the series? I have really enjoyed the Adrian Veidt stuff. And, um, we finally see in the last week's episode, the sort of, um, fruits of his labor in which he finally launches himself out into the stratosphere and like say, writes a message. Um, and here he, oh, maybe that was two weeks ago. Um, but here he is being sort of punished for those actions by the, um, the creations of Dr. Manhattan, uh, for wanting to leave. And, um, I think it's interesting that he is, uh, in the post credit scene, I guess I'm jumping forward a little bit. Um, talks about how he's unhappy in this heaven, in this utopia, because he's not needed, despite being worshipped as, you know, their master and everything. He's not, he's still not a god. And he aspires to that godlike status, which I think was really suiting sort of Adrian Veidt's whole narcissistic personality. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I, I, I enjoyed it. And I also like liked um, sort of the insights that we got into the, the servants, the... I can't remember their names. Phillips um, and Crookshanks. Phillips and Crookshanks. And um, where they, like their origins and uh, the very first Adam and Eve that um, Dr. Manhattan created and how they uh, remember all of it. And I thought that was, I was really fascinating and I, I enjoyed that as well. Chris, what did you think of the Dr. Manhattan, or I'm sorry, of the Adrian Veidt stuff in this episode in particular? Like we, we finally get the answers to a lot of questions we've had about why Veidt is there, um, we we learn that it's essentially his own, you know, it, it's like he asked to go there, um, but he's still a, a prisoner. Um, we learn that the game warden is the first Phillips. Uh, what what did you make of this part of the episode? Uh, I really liked. I really liked the the. I shouldn't say the flashback scenes. It's the whole episode is flashback scenes. But the one scene where um, Dr. Manhattan goes to the Antarctic base and they have that conversation and Adrian is just really disappointed that, you know, even though he, he, he killed millions of people with a giant squid, humanity is just still building bombs. Like pretty much like he's realizing that he did all this for nothing in, in a sense. And I really love the way, first of all, I love the way Jeremy Irons is dressed in that scene. Cause he's, he's like really groovy looking. And then just, I love the way he <laughs> plays the scene of just this like, he just can't believe that he did all this for like nothing essentially. Mm-hmm. And I also love that Dr. Manhattan kind of like tricks him in a way where he's like, ah, you'll be, you'll be worshiped like a God. If you go to this utopia I built and he's like, and Adrian sheds that like single tear. He's like, Oh, that's what I want. And then he gets there and it's obviously not what he wanted after all. And I, I just love the way that all, that all played out. I wonder what you guys think about 
the idea of the Phillipses and Crookshanks because I think you know we see this like uh, we see the the creation of life scene in the beginning of this episode where Doctor Manhattan is is creating all this life on Europa and we see the the first creation of Adam and Eve essentially but I I don't think and Ashley maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong since you watched it more recently but I don't think we see Doctor Manhattan create any other life uh, i'm sorry any other versions of phillips and crookshanks i think it's just those two that we see there so are we meant to assume that adrian Vite has somehow figured out a way to also create life himself like or, or is this just like him building on things that dr manhattan has already laid out like all, are all of the subsequent phillipses and crookshanks adrian Vite's um sort of quasi creations what do you guys think about that I think so because we sh- we see that shot of Doctor Manhattan pulling the original the 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 Adam and Eve figures out of that same body of water. Now I don't really know how Adrian figured out how to do that too, but it's it's clear that like they since they came from that body of water and it, we we saw that scene where Adrian's pulling those babies out of that body of water. Like he's the one who pretty much created the rest of them, but I don't know how he figured out how to do that. Yeah. 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 Um, you're right. Uh, Ben, he only, we only see the first two Adam and Eve being created by Dr. Manhattan. And I think it is Adrian Veidt figures it out later, like, or somehow works out a formula from that original creation. Um, and I think at some point Dr. Manhattan refers to that pond that the, the um, Crookshanks and Phillips comes from as being full of miracles or something like that. Hmm. So I think that there's some sort of, it's some sort of primordial soup or something that like begets those kind of um, the things that Dr. Manhattan creates. Yeah. I, I just thought it was such a fascinating idea, like Dr. Manhattan creating this life and realizing that they were essentially just like built to serve him. Like even though he created them, he became unsatisfied with, his own creations and he just decided to abandon them. And like that idea is such a, um, you know, like a bone chilling thing that, that like God creates a planet and uh, becomes utterly disinterested in his creations and just abandons them forever. That's such a, like a, you know, cuts you right to the core. Um, and, and there's so much like uh, Christian imagery and, and discussion in this episode in terms of like, you know, we see Adrian Veidt, uh as this like Jesus figure where he, he wants to be worshipped. He, you know, he he goes and and sort of uh, is is at uh, I guess like lording over these people and in um, uh, in this Europa area, and then he's ultimately crucified by them at the end. And he has these like weird uh, tree tomatoes like smashed in his face over and over again. But he's like shirtless and his arms are outstretched as if he's on uh, a cross at the end. So um, I, I don't know what exactly the show is trying to say about religion, but it, it doesn't seem like it necessarily like. Um, uh, I don't know. Do you guys have any thoughts about that? Well, I think what you said earlier about the idea of a uh, disinterested God abandoning us is exactly the thesis on religion that this show is trying to make, that um, whatever God, if they if they did exist, aren't, aren't interested or, like, have abandoned us. And um, the idea of playing God, I think, is always a really interesting uh, facet of any storytelling and something that I think that we see both aspects of in this show and in this episode because we see a godlike figure, Dr. Manhattan, and he uses these powers and, it, and yet is so inter- disinterested in being God. And um, then we see the counterpoint, Adrian Veidt, who wants so badly to be God and to play God. 
and um, only gets nothing and gets nothing out of it, mm-hmm. I guess I would say. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I also loved Adrian Veidt's uh, 2009 style there. He seemed very, like, 1980s with, like, the sleeves, the, the jacket sleeves rolled up. I love that look. Um, he mentions that a little elephant told him that Dr. Manhattan was, uh, I think, not on Mars or either on Mars or not on Mars. I don't remember the exact um, context of that conversation, but I, I think that's obviously a, a reference to Lady True. Um, I, so I just wanted to, to mention that before we let it pass by. Uh, I like this idea that um, Vite created, he's so smart, you know, that, that's been like the defining characteristic of this character from the beginning, from the graphic novel. He, he had created a plan A for Dr. Manhattan, you know, 30 years ago, that it was going to be this memory wiping device, this, this, uh, symbol that he was going to be able to push into his forehead. And, and it was something that Dr. Manhattan couldn't see. It, it reminded me a lot of kryptonite, you know, this concept of like, Superman having a weakness and not being able to see like through lead um, that that box that he opens up and I think he said something about like tachyon particles I'm not entirely sure what those are but that seems to be um, you know a, a weakness of Dr. Manhattan's he's not able well, to those are the particles that were in the chamber that created him weren't they oh that probably makes it yeah I'm sure they are that that makes a lot of sense it's been so long since I've read the original graphic novel but yeah I think that that probably makes sense um, so yeah, I just, the idea that, you know, and I thought that was a nice reference to like a callback to the original graphic novel too, right? Because like the, there's this big scene at the end where all of the, the surviving heroes like confront, uh, Ozymandias and he, they, he like lays out his evil plan about the squid and all of this. And he basically says like, it already happened. I already did it 35 minutes ago. And this thing where he like created this, uh, this option for John Osterman, he created it 30 years ago instead. So um, I thought that was a, a nice little callback there. Um, in the current timeline, or actually, let's let's talk a little bit about the post-credit sequence since we're still talking about Vite a little bit. Um, what did you guys think about this? The the uh, him reading this fog dancing book that that's been referenced a couple times so far. Um, like I said, we we find out that the game warden was the first Mr. Phillips, um, and then the horseshoe thing. I guess we can go ahead and talk about that now. Do you guys have any theories on what exactly? this is supposed to mean because we've seen this horseshoe show up in the show before too. I mean, he, I mean, obviously he's using it to dig his way out, but it implies that he knew this was going to play out this way the entire time. Cause the first time we see that horseshoe, he says to the, the Mr. Phillips, like, I don't need that right now. So it's almost like he has some sort of way to see into the future. I don't I, It's like, he almost has like the same ability that Dr. Manhattan has where he doesn't experience time the same way, but that doesn't make sense. So I don't understand how he knew he was going to need that horseshoe, but that's, that's how I took it. Yeah. And uh, like HT, did that square with you? Did, did you have any uh, reading of that scene in any other way? Like how the hell did he know to, to give that horseshoe to him? Honestly, did not know what to make of the horseshoe. I was like, maybe it's like a lucky horseshoe or something, but I have no idea. I guess that I think Chris's reading makes sense. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know what to make of it. It's like, because I think you're right, Chris, it seems to imply that like maybe um, if the Phillips and Phillipses and Crookshanks uh, are, are indeed creations of Adrian Veidt, maybe he's able to sort of implant them with the, this idea, this like as, as a backup plan, almost like a, a long con 
he's able to implant each of them with this idea to to give him a horseshoe at some point, like just as an escape hatch for a situation that he's not sure that he'll get into, but he might get into. I don't know. I, I wonder if the show is, is ever going to address that because we only have one episode left and it seems like there's a lot for the show to wrap up because we didn't even yeah, touch like on a, so many uh, characters, but like this episode does a really good job of like filling in a lot of blanks, but there's still so much left that I'm really paranoid the finale is going to be like like an hour-long monologue where they're just like, all right, now we're going to explain everything that happened. And I, and I have enough faith in the show that it'll, it'll find a way to make that interesting. But, you know, I don't know how they're going to wrap everything up. And according to Damon Lindelof, they, they, you know, they designed this first season to be completely self-contained. So there is, they are in theory going to wrap it all up. I just don't know how. Yeah. Um, so Angela awakens John, you know, back in the current timeline, and he teleports their kids away. He has formed an alliance with Will Reeves. Uh, what did you guys think about this, the the meeting of these two characters? Uh, I thought it was, I loved the, that whole paradox thing where it pretty much implies that the whole reason everything is happening is because Angela accidentally asked her, her grandfather in the past about something that he had no knowledge of, and that sort of like set in motion everything that's happening. And I, I really love that whole, cause you, you can't really have a time travel story without there being some sort of paradox. So I yeah. love that they just flat out underline it and they're just like, ah, oh, that's a paradox. And there's, it's, it's a bootstrap paradox, uh, yeah. which is something that uh, we're going to pull in some Dr. Who in here is explained in an episode of Dr. Who and is a really, and it's always a really fun element of time travel. And uh, I like the idea that, you know, this idea that, uh, Jed, Jed Crawford, yes, uh, was a part of the Cyclops cult, uh, came from Angela, but we don't know where it really originated because it's in that ty- that endless circle between her and Will Reeves of the past. And uh, the chicken and the egg, you don't know which one came first, but it turns out they're both there at the same time. Yeah, both simultaneously. That's a really interesting idea. And there's so much egg imagery in this episode in particular. There's been a lot throughout the series, but it seems like they've really ramped that up in this um, in this episode, do you guys have any thoughts about the significance of uh, eggs in this episode, or do you think it was just like a, a continuation of like a visual motif that they've been playing with a little bit? Well, he he says the I, Dr. Manhattan, you know, it's the, the the chicken and the egg thing, and the answer is like what came first, the chicken and the egg, and the answer is both. So I think that's really the biggest thing they're underlining. Also, eggs are delicious, and uh, I don't mind. <laughs> Uh, well, I think it goes to the whole creation of life, because when he first shows Angela the egg after she asks him to create life in front of her, he just gives her an egg. And um, she's confused at first, but then he says, well, isn't an egg a form of life? And uh, I think it ties into to the, the Crookshanks and uh, Phillips and uh, sort of the idea of, I don't know, we're all eggs in the end. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can buy that. Um, so we see this shootout in the streets, like Angela, you know, um, John Osterman is, is basically like sort of reeling a little bit from, from coming out of the end of this tunnel. Um, they, they talked about this tunnel imagery a lot, the tunnel of love and all of that, and this, this blind spot that Dr. Manhattan had for 10 years where he was cow and, and didn't know, you know, what was going on in his life. He, he couldn't see that part of the, the timeline at all. Um, but, uh, once he emerges from that, he, he seems a little dazed. Like he's not, he's not fully there. He's still trying to put all these pieces together. Um, Angela 
basically just tries to take things into her own hands and, and goes and, and shoots, you know, just like breaks into this huge shootout in the streets in this neighborhood outside her house um, as the 7th Cavalry are there. And, uh, you know, we, we see the, the head exploding thing. Like, he, he rolls in and, and starts blowing people's heads up. Uh, he stops bullets like Neo from The Matrix. Um, what did you guys think about the, the uh, Angela Abar as John Wick action scene kind of thing as it played out here? Um, HT, you, uh, you talk first. <laughs> it's a great scene. Um, yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. And yeah, it is very John Wickian, uh, her sort of shoot off it and stand off on her own against this whole team of 7th Calvary members. And then when John, um, when Dr. Manhattan comes out and uh, starts just exploding their heads with um, just by aiming his hand at them, it's I think a nice call, a well, nice callback. It's a callback to uh, how he won so many wars and defeated so many enemies in the comics as well. When he mm-hmm. just turned his head at them and they would just explode or disappear. So um, yeah, and I, I I like that sequence a lot. And also it, I think it feeds into um, Doctor Manhattan's continuing indifference because he could, you know, come out guns blazing with Angela too, but he waits until the last moment. Um, to help her um, before she like almost gets killed, and only to walk into the 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 cannons um, area so that he will get um, blasted away because that's just inevitable. Everything to him is inevitable, and it's he's just going along with how he sees things playing out before. Yeah, I was I was speaking with um, Dave Chen about this episode last night, and he was wondering why you know just on on like a, a simple narrative level why Doctor Manhattan wouldn't uh, teleport all of them away to safety instead of just the kids. Like, you know, what what is it about um, this situation where he, he it must play out in a way that's going to negatively affect uh, Angela and John? Like, is it just is there some larger reasoning behind this choice that you guys think we're gonna that will be revealed in the finale um, that makes this like the ultimate? path like a doctor strange uh avengers endgame you know there's only one outcome kind of scenario here or uh is there any other reason you guys can think of for why he wouldn't just use his abilities to you know protect his family and in a different way chris you speak first this time no i i feel like i've been speaking first the entire episode i I want (laughs) i want to give you the opportunity ht i want you to step out of the shadows (laughs) Um, yeah, I mean, I, I'm sure I'm, I wonder if it's something that will be unveiled or if it's just how Dr. Manhattan acts and sees the world because to him, everything is in that one, um, sort of set path, Mm -hmm. which I think is interesting because, you know, we have seen so many different sci-fi shows and stories and movies where there are divergent paths with every choice that we make. And, um, I, I wonder why Dr. Manhattan is so adamant that the idea that there's only one outcome for everything that happens. Yeah. Uh, and like that idea too of him being limited, which I think he he brought up, he said that his abilities or whatever he could do was limited. Is it something that's limiting him? Is he limiting himself? Um, is there like an extraneous force that's keeping him from being at his full potential or powers? Or is it the, the love that has grounded him and wanted makes him want to become human. 
Yeah, I was kind of wondering if it was just, you know, if a part of it was like he told Angela in that bar 10 years ago that things were going to end tragically. And if it's, it's sort of like at that point, things were already, um, you know, he, he experiences all of this stuff at the same time. So so it's almost like um, prophetic in a way, like he, he's just letting it play out the way that he told her it was going to play out. I don't know. I, I mean, we're getting into like unanswerable questions here, and I'm, I'm not sure. Um <laughs> How instructive it is to really think about like the the inner mechanics of Doctor Manhattan and like how he works because he's such a mysterious figure. But um, I, I wonder if that's something the show is going to uh, touch on or just sort of leave mysterious and leave for us to um, you know sort of endlessly wonder about. But um, Chris, did you have any thoughts about that at all? Yeah, I mean the only thing I can think of is it is like that uh, Avengers Doctor Strange thing where it's like this is the only way things can play out, and that's why he's making sure it happens this way. But uh, I guess we'll hopefully we'll see next week. Hope I, again, I really hope they're not gonna like brush some of this stuff up. I want answers, damn it. <laughs> um, I, I just realized that I forgot to write on our uh, our shared doc here that um, the scene where we see this sort of flashback to uh, John Osterman's upbringing and like the Lord and Lady of the Manor having sex for the first time, like where he's in the closet and he sees them. Um, you know, it, it's not a, a huge part of this episode, but I thought it might be worth touching on because they eventually sort of explain themselves. They sit him down, they give him a Bible and they make him promise to make it your purpose to create something beautiful in life. Um, and then obviously like that had, had a huge impact on him because he takes their actual manner, not, not recreating one, but like literally transporting the one that he, you know, partially grew up in, uh, and, and puts it on Europa and then, um, creates these people out of, out of their image. Um, what did you guys think about that, uh, part of the flashback? Yeah, I, I, I definitely dug that these, you know, the, the Crookshanks and Phillips characters aren't just like random, like he was drawing on his past. I thought that was a really neat touch. Um, I, I love that he, although I love that he moved the manor house, although a part of me like feels like that should have been like news at some point, like, ah, a giant house disappeared off of like, <laughs> yeah. like that should have been like, I feel like maybe it is, maybe it's like a background thing in the first episode that no one picked up on. Like there's something like a newspaper headline somewhere that says house vanishes, something like that. <laughs> yeah. You would think that would show up on some sort of satellite uh, recon or something, but um, yeah. Uh, okay. So let's jump into some lingering questions. I, I don't really have any uh, particular crackpot theories this episode, but if you guys do, please interrupt and, and throw them out. Um, I, I feel like this episode did a good job of answering a lot of questions and not necessarily raising a lot more. Like we're getting close to the end game here. So I feel like, They've uh, they've created the boundaries and now they're trying to fill those in so that the picture becomes clearer to us. Um, so why do you guys think that one of the one of the questions that it raises is why is it important that Angela sees John walking on water in the pool in the backyard? Um, I I don't think we're actually equipped to be able to answer this question. I don't think we have enough information to, to, you know, settle on the real answer, but I would love to hear if you guys have any theories about why you think that particular visual was important enough for Angela to see. I mean, the Jesus metaphor aside, I have no idea because it's not answered in the episode. And um, I'm guessing it's something that will be, or I'm hoping it's something that will be brought up again later. Um, yeah, I don't know. Um, what do you think, Chris? I mean, I definitely think it's setting something up 
again, it's that I hate to keep using this example because it's not the only one that's ever done it, but it's the one that everyone will immediately think of. I, I do think it's like that Avengers thing where he's setting things up to happen a certain way and he's telling her, you know, store he's he's both telling her and us, the audience, to store that info in the back of our noggins for the final episode because something's going to happen involving water. I don't know what it could be. I, I it's Chekhov's walking on water. Yes, exactly. I, that, that's really the best way I can. I yeah, you could you could say it where he's he's setting up something for her to keep in mind and for us to keep in mind for that final episode. And he explained to Angela in their first meeting in the bar that he could walk on water, and she like you know stops him and says, "Wait a second, you can walk on water." So it's like an idea that she's already familiar with. So I'm, I'm just wondering why the visual of her actually seeing it is so important there. Part of me wonders if it's because he is going to imbue Angela with his powers and maybe she will have to walk on water in, in some capacity. Like if that's going to be part of the end game, um, the idea is presented in this episode that, uh, um, basically Dr. Manhattan can pass on his powers to somebody else, like through, I think they imply it's through a food, like maybe mm -hmm. not only through a food. That part wasn't a hundred percent clear to me, but it, it seemed like he was definitely saying, you know, I, I could uh, I could give you this egg if I want if I imbued it with the right you know the, the right uh, chemical makeup or whatever, and you ate this egg, you could have my powers basically. So yeah, I, I feel like oh shit, and he was like... making he was making waffles at the end. She should have eaten those waffles. Yeah. <laughs> it was yeah, she she mashed blew those it. eggs out of the sky. There, he was trying to give her some powers, and she smashed <laughs> them everywhere. Damn it, if she had just eaten those waffles, none of this would be happening. <laughs> well, I feel like that, you know, talking about, like, Chekhov's walking on water, like, Chekhov's who's going to eat that egg? Like, somebody is going to end up with Dr. Manhattan's powers by the time the next episode, uh, you know, is probably halfway through. I, I suspect that's not going to be, like, the final reveal that, like, somebody else has those abilities. I, I feel like this is something that the 7th Cavalry, like Joe Keen, has been, you know, he's explicitly stated that he wants to become a new Dr. Manhattan, so that's what he's going to try to do. Do you guys think that... Um, I don't know. Do you have any other theories on who will ultimately gain those powers? Um, we know that who wants them, but who do you think might actually get them? I think the signs are all pointing to Angela yeah. and um, maybe she'll get it through an egg because we've seen so many uh, beats of the eggs being shown up, showing up and then being smashed. Um, but yeah, I think I remember Dr. Manhattan said, said specifically he could put his um, chemical makeup in a substance and that substance would be consumed by a person. So it seems like it's something that um, Angela will consume in some way. Uh, but I probably a lot of people will be vying for whatever that, that thing is and uh, trying to get his powers. Yeah. I'm wondering if you guys think that Will Reeves already has these abilities because we see him, you know, form this alliance with Dr. Manhattan earlier in the episode. This was, I think, 10 years prior to the events that we're seeing, you know, seeing in, in 2019. Um, I wonder if uh, Dr. Manhattan had slowly been um, feeding Will Reeves these these abilities a little bit because early on in the series he eats an egg and I'm wondering I was about to say, didn't he eat an egg in the first episode yeah or something? I'm, I'm wondering if it's like you know 
slowly like these these abilities are being doled out to him um maybe that could explain why he looks so good for his age why he's able to sort of like uh, rise up out of that wheelchair and walk around without a problem um early on in the show he he explicitly tells angela that he's dr manhattan and we thought that was a joke at the time but maybe he you know part of him wasn't lying maybe a, a part of him actually is kind of dr manhattan at that point um i don't know i, I yeah guys what if it's a Buffy the Vampire Slayer situation and we all become Dr. Manhattan. It's a world of new gods. Oh, interesting. I have not seen Buffy, so I didn't understand that reference, but I'm... I'm okay, no, well, I'm... at the end of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, <laughs> uh, she gives her powers to all the women who are um, potential slayers of the world, and it's basically this big empowering thing because she's no longer the one chosen hero, but it's something that she disseminates to all the women who can now fight and um, be strong and powerful. So you're thinking that uh, this scenario, maybe maybe the millenn- that, maybe the that's what the Millennium Tower does. Is it, uh, instead of shutting down Dr. Manhattan or, or uh, destroying his power set, maybe it distributes it to everyone and then makes... Uh, nobody special by making everybody special? Is that maybe a, a yeah. theory? <laughs> I, maybe. I, we're, we're in the crackpot section here, so I feel like <laughs> we can get away with that. The world of new gods. That's what it is. It's, yeah. uh, everyone will be a god, and and thus uh, the world will be forever changed. I don't know. <laughs> I like that idea because there are several heads I would love to explode, so I hope <laughs> this happens, and I hope I can just blow up some heads once I get these powers. Um, so I, I wanted to mention, we already talked about the horseshoe thing. Um, I wanted to s- sort of uh, start wrapping us up here by talking about Lube Man. We've, we've mentioned this character a couple times. Um, I was reading the Pedipedia entries earlier this morning before we started recording, and it to me, it all but confirms that that character is actually Agent Petey. So in this week's Pedipedia entries um we get to read a teenaged dale pd the the fbi agent character his attempted synopsis of fog dancing which is the book that i I mentioned earlier um that adrian veidt is reading uh mrs clark was also reading it um on her front porch in the beginning of a couple episodes ago uh in the world of watchmen this book was written by a character named max shea who was this fictional um, you know, he's a writer who wrote the Tales of the Black Freighter, the, the pirate comics within the superhero graphic novel of Watchmen. He was one of the, um, I guess, literary um, slash artist slash whatever scientist collective that were kidnapped and forced to work on the squid plot for Adrian Veidt. And then uh, Veidt murdered them to tie up the loose ends and make sure that nobody, you know, figured out his endgame there. So Fog Dancing is... Um, this book that has has appeared a bunch of times in the graphic novel, it's appeared a couple times on the show, like I said. Um, Agent Dale Petey, when he was a, a kid, according to this PDpedia entry, tried to summarize the synopsis of, of this book in a contest because the book is, is like famously so complex and convoluted that um, th- th- there's a magazine out there that just like has an annual contest to see who can summarize the book. Uh, and he describes the main character in that story like this. He says... See him now in your mind's eye, moving through boiling clouds of sunset haze, wearing his gas mask and skin-tight silver suit, shimmering with SPF 666, looking slick and doing what must be done in secret to keep you and me and all of us free. So I think the thing about the silver skin-tight suit 
uh, shimmering with um, you know, like a sunscreen gel is probably uh, the origin story for Lube Man. And um, I suspect we're going to see that character uh, try to, to maybe save Lori Blake at the beginning of next week's episode. Um, we were theorizing at the end of last week's episode that we might see that this week. But this episode really just focused on uh, Dr. Manhattan, Angela, and Adrian Veidt, and we didn't really get any other updates from any other characters. So uh, I just wanted to point that out in case there was any lingering doubt about whether uh, Dale Peaty is Lube Man. I think the that mystery has been solved. So um, before we... <laughs> this is uh, such a deep dive for such an obscure character, and I love it. I know, yeah. Um, I, I really hope that Lube Man becomes like the the one and only Dr. Manhattan by the time yeah, this thing is Yeah, maybe Lube Man will be Dr. Manhattan. <laughs> Um, I also wanted to mention that uh, in, in my conversation with Dave last night, he was talking about, you know, we we're talking about like who might ultimately gain Dr. Manhattan's powers. And I think that the thing that Dave said that really um, rang true to me was it might be uh, Angela and Cal's kids. Like the show has dealt so much with the idea of generational trauma and like passing on um, things to generations and, and the idea for uh, those powers to be passed down to the next generation instead of just passed over to, you know, to Angela directly, um, I think makes a lot of sense thematically for what the show's been doing. But um, Chris, I don't think I, I heard from you on that. Do you have any any theories about who might ultimately gain those powers? No, I mean, it seems like it should be Angela because she's, you know, the main character of the show, but that also seems like maybe too obvious and so maybe they'll pick someone else, but I would be fine if it ended up being Angela yeah. or me. I'll take those powers. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. So any closing thoughts, anything that we didn't talk about or any um, maybe small moments that we didn't mention in this episode that you guys uh, specifically wanted to point out? The one thing I want to touch on, I mentioned this in my review, is I'm very curious what the hell happened to the biological grandfather of those kids. He's played by Jim Beaver, who's a really good character actor. Oh, he yeah. was in like they had that one scene where he's on the porch and he's never been seen again. And I, I can't figure out what the deal because like. Not that Jim Beaver's like a huge actor, but he's he's a well enough known actor that it seems weird to cast him for just for that. So my only theory is maybe he's a member of the Seventh Cavalry because he seemed fairly racist because he was talking about Redford Asians and stuff like that. So maybe that's how he knew because like it's not explained how the Seventh Cavalry knows that Cal is Doctor Manhattan. Right. So I feel like maybe that has something to do with it. Maybe he knows he's in the 7K and he found out. That is really interesting because I, I think um, one thing we thought we got some answers to in this episode was the White Knight, right? right? Like the um, what happened uh, in that White Knight, how Cal survived that thing. It's because he was Dr. Manhattan. And I think they say that he, like, uh, as a reflex, basically, like, zapped somebody away, zapped away the person who was going to kill Angela at the last second, right? And I, I think the implication is that Cal doesn't know that he did that, but I wonder if uh, Jim Beaver's character, if he is part of the 7th Cavalry, if he was in that house, maybe as a, or maybe looking in or something, like, maybe to protect the kids, like, uh, he, theoretically, you know, he, he doesn't want those kids to be hurt because they're uh, of his own bloodline. So maybe he saw Cal uh, teleport that person away, and maybe he's the one who told the 7th Cavalry, hey, this is the guy, you know, and, and got that whole thing in motion. What do you think about that? 
I don't. I don't think the kids were living with uh, Angela and Cal yet because they oh, started right. living with them only after her partner died right. during the okay. White Night. Thank you. Yep. Yep. Good. Good. We're we're but shaving this down. Could be, <laughs> there could be something that there. Maybe he's yeah. even the person who got zapped away. I mean, it, they don't say the person who got zapped away died per se. Maybe he just got zapped somewhere else. Yeah. Like he woke up somewhere. I don't yeah, know. Yeah. He's like a, a Bruce Wayne in like the Dark Knight rises where he you know he just like somehow stumbles across <laughs> a desert a yeah desert wasteland and, and returns to the seventh cavalry and explains the whole situation so um yeah that is uh that's an interesting option too so i i wonder if we are going to see him because you know that's the same thing that, that kind of we were thinking with um yaya abdul mateen the second like he's a pretty well-known character it seems odd that he would be playing such a uh support you know like a basic supporting role as cal but obviously that turned into a much much larger thing i wonder if there is something in the finale that that uh hinges on jim beaver because that you're right that does seem like a very 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 small role for him to just pop in for this one you know like an hour of shooting basically and and then no you know not never be mentioned again so i would not be surprised if that um ended up coming back to be true so uh, one other thing that somebody just uh, sent me a tweet about. Uh, apparently, there's a black exploitation movie from 1977 called Abar, the First Black Superman, which I've never what? heard of before, and I thought that was kind of a cool uh, potential connection. I wonder if if Dame Lindelof and his writers' room know about this movie, and maybe that's why Angela's last name is Abar, because obviously, like, Black Superman is something that. Uh, you know, let's put Hobbs and Shaw aside for a second, but um, that concept has been <laughs> has been explicitly mentioned in Watchmen, like the the Superman uh, parallels between his upbringing and Will Reeves's upbringing um, have been made very very clear in the show. So uh, I, I had no idea this movie existed, but um, yeah, this 1977 black exploitation film, Abar the First Black Superman, is out there. So maybe if people want to track that down, maybe they can find more potential clues and uh, things that that may come back around in the in the finale somehow. So. Um, so anything else that you guys wanted uh, to mention? One last thing I want to note is that I think it's interesting that Dr. Manhattan, every time he falls in love with a, a younger human, uh, woman, it's always, it's last two times have been the daughters of the first generation of heroes of Minutemen. Uh, so six, Silk Spectre with, and Laurie and, um, now with, uh, Angela and, uh, her grandfather being the, uh, being hooded justice. So I think that's interesting. And, um, I wonder like if what that pattern is and also just, uh, it, um, Dr. Manhattan's sort of, um, uh, attempts to be human and to ground himself through love and ultimately failing in some aspects. Dr. Manhattan definitely has a type. That's for sure. Daughters of superheroes. (laughs) So, uh, cool. All right. Well, let's tell people where they can find more of our work. Uh, HC, let's start with you. You can find me writing every day at SlashFilm.com, and I'm on Twitter at htranbui. Chris? Also SlashFilm.com, and I'm on Twitter at cevangelista413. And I am on SlashFilm.com as well. I'm on Twitter and Instagram at benpairs, and you can find more about Watchmen on, uh, at SlashFilm.com and linked inside the show notes of this episode. SlashFilm Daily is published every weekday, bringing you the most exciting news from the world of movies and TV, as well as deeper dives into the great features you can find on the site, You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. 
and send your feedback, questions, comments, concerns, crackpot theories to us at peter at slashfilm.com and make sure to leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air. Don't forget also to rate and review the podcast on iTunes. It helps us out a lot. Tell your friends, spread the word, and we'll be back to talk about the final episode of the first season and maybe the whole series of Watchmen next Monday. So thanks for listening. Uh, Stay tuned for more Slash Film Daily content as this week goes on, and we'll talk to you tomorrow. (laughs) 